Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by GoToMeeting with HD Faces. Now your team can meet face-to-face while online from anywhere, even from an iPad. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California. For almost 150 years, the University of California has educated the brightest minds and helped California become a beacon of innovation. UC is the future made bold. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate Political Gab Fest for May 30th, 2014, the college Why Bother edition. Today, is Santa Barbara killer Elliot Roger an aberration or is America increasingly dangerous for women? Why has this massacre prompted such a vigorous debate about sex and violence, but not about guns? Then American higher education costs way too much. Students are drowning in debt and it's not even clear that going to college is a good investment. President Obama has a plan to improve it all with a federal ratings program for colleges, so why are university presidents so scared of it? Then a bold new attempt to save Detroit by tearing down a third of its buildings. Could it possibly work? It can't possibly work, but we'll we'll pretend that it can. I'm David Plotz. I'm the editor of Slate. I'm here in Washington. Slate senior editor Emily Bazelon is, of course, in New Haven. Hey, Although you're in New Haven, you're in North Haven, apparently, which I didn't realize yeah, until today. Yeah, that's just a level of specificity too far, don't you think? Yeah, but I just, I've, I've been saying New Haven for all this time, and it's actually not even true. And Dickerson is off reporting somewhere. So that means we have a special guest making his GabFest debut. Is host of CNN. He does his own drum roll. The lead. Do you have to do that for your TV show, Jake? Host of CNN's The Lead, the 4 p.m. show. If you're watching one show on cable news, it should be this show. If you're not watching one show on cable news, then I guess you have more time on your hands. Uh, you can watch it the, online, though. You can. I mean, it is. Okay. You can watch CNN.com slash the lead. You can watch the little bits. Okay. Little bits. Fewer ads or more ads when you watch them? Fewer ads. I'm just saying because obviously this is a tech-savvy audience. Yes. Do you, but you, do you podcast the show? We don't yet. We're, we're all, it's all evolving. Okay. There's going to be a, a, a time when you can go online and watch an entire show, but we're not there yet. But let me introduce this actual Sorry. person. This Sorry. person <laughs> is actually named Jake Tapper. Hello. He is also the author of the 2012 bestseller, The Outpost. He is a, he's one of the most delightful men in Washington journalism, oh. and he's going to prove it right now. He's, <laughs> he's smart, funny, relentless, curious. So, oh my God, you're Jake, so set up. Welcome Jake. to the Gabfest. Very nice. You can go nowhere but down. I know. I seriously, I should leave right now. Drop the mic and leave. I, I will say also, friend of Slate, huge fan of Slate. Even back in the days when I was with Salon.com, back yeah. when Salon.com and Slate were rivals, 
Uh, always a fan of Slate. Great, great. Do you have a Slate umbrella? I don't. I don't have a Slate umbrella. All right, umbrella. we should find you one from the old umbrella collection. Or a Slate t-shirt. The thing I always liked about you, your relationship to Slate, is that it was, as I imagine your relationship to everything is, possibly even your children, It was a, it's a mix of... Um, Harmony and belligerence. <laughs> that, like when we did stories that you didn't like, you were like all over. You were like full of like vitriol and have very critical things to say. But then when we did stories you admired, quite the reverse. And it was always it, – I, I, it was very direct. I admired that. And, and, and all seriousness, there's no Thank like – Thank you. Well, no, now, like, I'm, fake, I'm, now I'm all fakeness. rainbows and unicorns. So it's so uh, – but Slate's awesome. I've is that what CNN is focusing on? Now? Rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> Rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> you can't find the jet. There's, a, like, miss, there's a missing unicorn. We are going to find unicorns. There's a missing unicorn. Okay. I want to, of course, before we get started, tell you a little bit about Slate Plus. It's our new membership program. Some of you have joined. It has got all sorts of wonderful bonuses for you if you are a Slate podcast listener. You get ad-free podcasts. You get a recommendation engine, which tells you everything that has ever been recommended on Cocktail Chatter or on the Culture Fest or on Hang Up and Listen. And, of course, you get extra bonus podcast segments for Hang Up and Listen, for the Culture Fest, and for our show. And this week, we are going to have a special catnip edition, which is that Emily and I, we're not going to talk about the Supreme Court on this week's show. We didn't find a good topic that we thought would work. But as our extra segment, I'm going to interview Emily about a couple of the Supreme Court decisions this week, and she's going to tell us why they matter. So... You should uh, subscribe to Slate Plus, and you can get it free. You can get two weeks free, and and you can get even more good stuff if you email me at david.plots at slate.com or go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus uh, for the best possible deal. Can I say one other thing about Slate Plus? Man? Yeah, as long as it's nice. It's not, it, I mean, it's important to support good journalism. That's all. It's important. You. To, you know, it's, 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 I remember when I finally crossed the Rubicon and started subscribing to the New York Times. Uh, I mean, online, the digital edition, and andrewsullivan.com and Slate Plus. I mean, it's just it's important if you have the means to support good journalism. That is well from said. your mouth to uh, our listeners' ears. Elliot Rogers' killing spree in Santa Barbara has prompted intense debates about sexual violence, about mental illness and violence, and about the sexist, loathsome manosphere culture that both fascinated and rejected Roger. One thing that has not prompted, however, is an intense debate about guns. So, Emily, women were among his victims. He was full of hateful misogyny. Why has this particular mass murder prompted such a discussion about that in ways that other mass murders have not? Well, Elliot Roger was really clear that he saw himself as this um, unfortunate virgin, that the fact that women had sexually rejected him was at the bottom of all of his obsessions. It was the way in which his mental illness played out was to obsess about this. He wrote about wanting to put women in concentration camps. I mean, it's really ugly. It's almost like a cartoon of a sexually frustrated 22-year-old in a way that I both kind of can't believe he was so overt and clear. And also, I can't believe that we haven't seen this before because it almost feels like overdetermined that all this rage about um, sexual rejection and women and confused ideas about masculinity would erupt into violence. And I guess the thing that I think is different about this is the abstracted nature of the violence. So there are lots of men who get incredibly angry with specific women and kill and hurt those women. That's common. Um, It's part of domestic violence. But 
to have someone then kill essentially just any old woman. So he went and knocked on the door of a sorority at um, UCSB. And then when no one answered the door, he just killed two women on the street. There's something really scary about how that. About, and how about the fact that four say, of his victims were men? Yes, exactly. And four of his victims were men, including his roommates. So I think there's also some way in which he was angry with the men who were sexually active and he wasn't, or some way in which this outlet of rage against women was maybe not all of what Emily, Emily, just going back. I mean, we have had tons of killers. We have killers who've who've targeted prostitutes. You have people who, who, what's the guy in Cleveland who locked up all these women. It's not like there Castro. have not been Castro. Castro. There have not. It's not like we have a shortage of crazed, psychopathic, horrible men committing terrible acts of violence, specifically aimed at women. And in fact, as Jake points out, I mean, most of his the victims who died are were in fact men. Why is this one the one that grabs people or that grabs a certain set of women in a way that when prostitutes are murdered, it doesn't? Well, maybe we should have the same response when prostitutes are murdered. But I think the manifesto is so specific in its rage against women, but also it's about womankind. It's not specific women with whom he had a relationship with, which is what we're used to hearing about. Although when you think of men, you know, serial killers going after prostitutes, there is a similarity there. And maybe just unfortunately, we're not as moved by the plight of prostitutes because it seems other and seamy in a way that the idea of these college girls walking around and these college men getting mowed down feels like it could happen to so anyone. So Jake is is the is do you think it's like it's a useful lens to look at him through the through the lens of misogyny or is it only this is a crazy person? I think first and foremost he obviously was severely emotionally disturbed and and whether he had grasped onto misogyny or racism or whatever this kid had serious problems and and what disturbs me beyond his actions and and his twisted thoughts is the fact that it seems like this was preventable his mother had called the police after seeing some of his disturbing youtube postings seven santa barbara police deputies uh, or sheriff deputies went to his apartment talked to him not surprisingly given that he was able to hide his illness from a lot of people uh, he talked them out of taking the mom's concerns seriously. They did not go into his room. They apparently did not do uh, any sort of search about his online profile. If they had, they would have found some of the disturbing things that reporters have found in the following days. And I think it shows how ill-equipped our law enforcement officials are to, to deal with mental illness. Um, in terms of the misogyny, I, I, what I suspect is that his twisted thoughts and his feelings of entitlement – ring a bell with a lot of women out there who have felt hostility, not just from the frat boys and the football players on college campuses, but also from the so-called geeks and dorks who think, hey, I'm a nice guy. How come I'm not entitled to have sex with you? And I think that probably touches a lot of women emotionally, apparently from the yes, all women uh, hashtag success. But I do personally think, given that he was such an outcast, he is a flawed poster boy for that issue, uh, in, in my personal view, not to not take it seriously. So we'll come back to the misogyny question in a second, but actually I want to go back to your mental illness point, which was a good one. Emily, this is a subject you think about and write about a lot. 
there was an interesting story. I don't know if you guys saw it in the post today. I don't know if it ran elsewhere about this family. It's a that great had story. Yeah. Parents who had reported their own son, wor- they were worried for very legitimate reasons that their mentally ill son was going to commit a spree killing, that he was incredibly dangerous and that he had access. He might have access to guns and he could do something. He was able to buy anti – he was able to buy guns at the same store where he was buying his antipsychotic medication. Unbelievable. So One-stop shopping. One-stop. That's what Walmart is there for. So the parents reported him and – do you remember what the charges were? But they, the, yeah. he, he was jailed and, he, and parents hoped he would mostly be given treatment, but he ended up with a 15-year sentence without having committed any act of violence. And the parents are torn up. I mean, obviously, they feel they possibly prevented a much worse event, his own death and the death of innocence, but he was preventatively jailed. So, Emily, what's your, you know, as somebody who's, who's looked at mental illness and, and its relationship to crime over the years, what's your feeling about how could, in fact, could Elliot Roger have been stopped in the way that Jake suggested he could? Well, I'm so glad you brought up that flip side because at these moments, it's so tempting to imagine that we just need to make it easier to involuntarily commit mentally ill people. They're not they're dangerous and we just, you know, all these warning signs were there. But in fact, it is incredibly hard to predict who's kind of suggestive but not totally clear propensity to violence, who will actually commit violence? I mean, psychiatrists failed at this. Yes, the police failed at this this time, but it's really not surprising that someone who is lucid and able to hide what they're doing would be able to walk away from seven cops who had no search warrant, couldn't find the guy's guns. So to me, the answer is not about our laws about commitment. It's about easy access to weapons. And One way in which I would be very willing to essentially discriminate against mentally ill people is that once you have a mother like Elliot Rogers' mother or the parents in the Washington Post story, they should be able to have a court process they can go through to get weapons taken away. And California is now going to consider a bill where essentially you'd have a restraining order for access to guns, like the restraining orders we have for domestic violence, where you can go and say, hey, I think this person is a danger to himself or others. Can you take his weapons away? And you don't have to meet the very high standard of, is this person imminently about to commit violence? You could have a more, you know, inchoate, but real fear. And the courts could listen to that and simply treat mental illness and also, we should say, substance abuse as reason to limit access to weapons. Because substance abuse is much more of a risk factor, actually, than mental illness is when you look at the numbers. So, Jake, you you have, um, you know, you've been in Washington for 20 years covering politics. And each time we have one of these killings, there there is this sense Mm -hmm. that, oh, something will change in the way we talk about guns or mental illness or both. And since I think Carolyn McCarthy and the Long Island killing, which was 20 years ago, yeah. that has not been the case. No. Basically, it has gone in the other way. Is there anything about this killing that makes you think, oh, maybe there will be a change from this one? I think there are two reasons why it won't. One is that half the killings were done with a knife or knives. His two roommates and a friend visiting were killed by knives. And the second one is that California has some of the strictest gun control laws in the nation, where I think there should be room for some sort of exploration is is specifically in the access to weapons among individuals who are mentally disturbed or showing problems of mental disturbance and also people who have who have drug and alcohol problems. The way that society right now looks at people 
is very binary in terms of their mental health. Either they are fine and free, or they have been adjudicated by a court of law to be a danger to themselves or others. And as Emily's referring to, there's there's talk of there being more of like some sort of middle ground where weapons might be more of a question. Now, I think California already has some laws in that middle ground, but they're talking about expanding and, and making them more aggressive. The big problem, and you touched on this when talking about the Washington Post story, is that we don't have a mental health system to deal with these people. Obviously, the, the, the way that we, when all three of us were kids, there were hospitals. There was a national health service in this country. There were mental hospitals. And where most of these patients are now are the streets or jail or dead because we don't, as a society, have a system for mental illness the way we do for physical illness. I mean, I just want to add to that that there's a reason we got away from the old system, which is to make more room for outpatient treatment and because we have better medication than we had in the you know 70s or 60s. That is not to say that you're not right and that we don't have this big problem, especially with using prison as essentially like the de facto mental health services, especially for people who don't have resources. It's so torturous for the families of people who are mentally ill because on the one hand, you fear taking away the freedom of someone who you're going to make completely miserable, maybe for no real reason. And I think a lot of families question themselves how much are they willing to take care of their family members? How much is this somehow only their responsibility? But then the flip side of this is this question of danger and whether the law gives you enough power when you really feel in your gut something is wrong, as Elliot Rogers's mother does. And I really hope California passes this restraining order law and tries this um, kind of method because it's exactly the sort of experiment that we want the states to try so we can see if having this approach makes sense. I mean, we should also say that most mentally ill people are not violent. What there is a connection between is mental illness and these mass shootings that we are all understandably pretty obsessed by. Let me go back now to this misogyny question. There's this moment of anger about sexual assault. We've seen it at what's happening on college campuses. Uh, we've seen a huge amount of discussion about this issue. The yes, all women hashtag has obviously taken off. There's concern about poisonous speech towards women. I think the trigger warnings are another aspect of this, this idea that that there is a lot of kind of intrinsic violence in the way we're talking about women in the culture now. Does this reflect, is it there actually more violence towards women in the culture? Or is it that as women have gained an economic power, they have an ability to speak out about it in a way that they didn't? Or is it that there is, in fact, growing violence about this? Because men, as men lose power, as men lose political power, and they perceive a loss of social power, that they are they're lashing out in hateful ways. Not Obviously, not, not all men, but some small percentage of men who are who are acting out more. And I just don't have a – I want someone to tell me what the right answer to that is. <laughs> oh, well, there's no way that violence against women is increasing. If you compared it to, you know, decades or 100 years ago, you would see, like, incredibly upsetting kinds of an extent of violence against women. But there is the internet, which makes all this – the ugliness, at least the speech part of it, very visible. But the ugliness is towards alarming. everyone, Emily. The poison – there's poison. As you guys were talking before the show, there is poison – Towards everyone. Yeah, but the poison against women is specific. I mean, there are other kinds of specific poison, but it can be kind of brutal and assaultive in all these ways that, as you also said, women are very getting better at articulating and really calling to attention and feeling like part of feminism is 
airing all this and addressing it and making sure that we surface it as a cultural problem that everyone should be part of and aware of and that men, who obviously most men are not in this scary category, that men are also thinking of it as a problem that's their problem that's worth taking on and not something that we just sort of shrug off and laugh off. I I think where I am concerned about the yes, all women hashtag is the idea of this killer being some sort of poster boy for misogyny because his kind of misogyny is so extreme, so out there, so easy for the average misogynist, the average sexist at a, on a college campus to distance himself from. He's nothing like this guy. And where the real problems are, and I, I agree with everything Emily just said, I think that it's not that there's been an increase of violence against women. There's just a, an increase of talking about it, uh, fighting it, rebelling against it, talking about the idea that if you rape somebody, your punishment should be worse than just suspended, suspension for a semester. Where the work needs to be done is in educating regular guys, 18, 19-year-olds about, in terms of the college campus situation, about what's appropriate, what's the way to look at women, what's the way to regard women, what's, what's risky behavior when you're drunk, et cetera. And if you make Elliot Roger the poster boy, that, that guy's not going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. But the great thing about the Yes All Women hashtag is all the much more quotidian mundane examples yes. women are giving of it's the guy who you have to say, I have a boyfriend to get rid of him at a party because just saying to him, I'm not interested is you don't think it's going to work. Or it's like the skeezy guy in the subway station who's like – anyway, there are so many small examples that I think a lot of women contend with all the time. I will say my fear about this is when it starts to verge into the um, very thin-skinned because I feel like – You also have to be a person in the world who can go through life and not let every insult and every bit of even harassment ruin your day. You have to be able to sometimes actually make fun of the things around you and just like keep on trucking. And so I do get a little bit worried that when women are super obsessed with victimhood, that they kind of give up too much of their own agency and let these men have too much power over their own emotions. Um, you know, that all, I think it's Mae West saying that you can only, someone can only make you feel terrible if you let them. On the other hand, I always go back and forth because I think the consciousness raising about this is really useful and especially for some younger wo- women, very powerful. Some yeah. of the best stuff I've read about the reaction to this killer and also the yes, all women hashtag are from... Um, Geeks, from men geeks, uh, talking about how they identify with the less insane parts of of the frustration that you hear in the videotape. There was a a Jeopardy champion and a comedian, uh, and I'll research it and provide you the links if you want. But uh, talking about their past feelings of resentment and entitlement as 19-year-old, 20-year-old virgins, that was really interesting to me. What percentage of American men, I have the answer, do you think are virgins at age 22? Oh, wow. Uh, 25. I'll go with 15. Tapper for the win. It's 15, between 10 and 15, which is a lot lower than I would have guessed more like that, what you said, Emily. Yeah, I'm clearly living a life surrounded by the, the lovely, nerdy geeks who have not gotten laid yet. If, you can, if, you can, if by the way, if you can rely upon 22-year-old Got men self-reporting to, to, yes. to be to be honest about <laughs> whether or not they're I'm self-reporting. That's right. right and they weren't right. Conv- exactly. admitting exactly. Um, okay, let's... I can just see them. So, well, does it count when? No, that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> 
You can finish that sentence. No, There's no, no, this no. Is not TV, man. You can, wherever you want to go with that. Uh, fill in the blank. The GapFest is brought to you this week by Citrix GoToMeeting. Building a strong relationship with your team is key for any business. You need to meet and collaborate with coworkers on a regular basis to brainstorm, to develop good ideas and solutions, and just work together better. But with people in different locations and working on the go, getting everyone together can be impossible. And that's why you need Citrix GoToMeeting, the powerfully simple way to meet in person, online, from anywhere, at any time. It's incredibly easy. You can sign up for GoToMeeting from your computer or your mobile device and launch your first meeting in seconds. You'll all be able to share the same screen to collaborate on projects in real time. It makes it easier for everyone to stay on the same page. And if you turn on your webcam, as we have done here, turn on your webcam, you can see each other face-to-face. It's just like being in the same room, even when you're miles apart. Start working smarter today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code GABFEST. These are fat years for university presidents and administrators. Tuitions are soaring. The money spent on buildings and bureaucracy at universities is rising. The federal government is doling out huge sums of money for student loans, which is funding all of this. At the same time, there's a crisis about American higher education. There's a chorus of people who say U.S. colleges cost way too much. There are no meaningful measures of quality. Too many young people are starting college and not finishing and then ending up drowning in debt. So President Obama has a plan. He wants to rate colleges by access, affordability, graduation rates, and then by the earning power of the people who graduate from it. And starting in 2018, he wants to use that data to to help determine how much money in federal loans those schools will get. So, Emily, let's start with you. You live in a university world. You, you teach at a university. Why is this plan so scary for university presidents? Well, because if they come up with a bad rating system, then they're going to screw over the, the wrong school. So especially if you're a heavily liberal arts school and your graduates get out and then, you know, can't find a job or in low paid jobs, you worry that's going to be used against you and maybe you're providing well, shouldn't it exactly that. Shouldn't it be used against you? Well, no. I don't think Why that <laughs> Well, I mean, look, I'm all for a rating system if they can do it right. I'm a little nervous. You know, rating systems, accountability, all this idea of quantifying education in the race to the top fashion is not looking so hot right now. However, if they could come up with one, and I like the criteria they're using, especially the issue of debt load to graduation rates, that seems to me like absolutely we should be paying more attention to that information before we give out loans to these schools. And we should make sure that people are more aware of those numbers before they enroll. And this is like a classic Cass Sunstein nudge kind of suggestion where you have the government stepping in and giving people the information that will help them make better choices. And because what we want to avoid, obviously, is these overloads of debt for students who go to these kind of diploma mill schools where you don't even get a diploma at the end because actually you're not going to graduate. One of the things that's happened in journalism, and this has always been true in TV, I guess, Jake, but in journalism, we now have ratings every day, which is that you can measure exactly how much traffic you get to a particular story. In TV, I'm sure you get overnights for yep. for your show. <laughs> and on the one hand, you say, like, you know what? This is causing me. This is forcing me. God, I guess I just have to keep covering whatever it is that you feel you're compelled to keep covering because it's, I can't it's think, generating traffic. I can't traffic. think of an example. 
I can't. I mean, I, with CNN, I definitely cannot I think no of exam- anything. There's no that example CNN has of covered a lot. They of. Covered a lot because the audience was really. I definitely in can't it. think of that. You know, actually, but, either. but it happens a lot. By the way, it, it happens a lot. By the way, it, with CNN, not just with the plane, but like it happened since I've only been at CNN for for a year and change. But like it happened with. The Boston bombing. It happened with the Oklahoma tornado. It happened with the government shutdown. It happened with the Navy Yard shutdown. It happened with the Zimmerman trial. I mean, it happened a bunch of times. A lot of things that we get direct feedback. Yes, more. We like this more. So those are kind of rating systems which get at you instantaneously. But working in any business, any for-profit business, as we all do, you also have a rating system, which is: Are you making money? Is this business a going concern? The idea that higher education feels itself, feels like, oh, they're going to measure the wrong – their immediate reaction is, oh, they're going to measure the wrong thing. We can't be measured. seems to me just to exemplify all that is wrong with American higher education. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, Senate, go ahead. You're, go ahead. I defer to my colleague. No, don't from, defer to her. Don't defer don't to her. Defer. She's going to speak to like from the ivory tower. Well, I was going to say like, is play the Yale, like Yale. Oh, we're. I was going to be super cynical. It you was. It makes. I like the idea of providing information. I do wonder about the government being the clearinghouse of it. I mean, I, I have to say. Because oh, because this, U.S. News is doing such a great job. No, now. U.S. I, I mean, no, exactly. They're they're doing a horrible job in all the Barron's Guide to Colleges. But I do wonder about the government doing it for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is colleges lie to the government about, I mean, they lie to the government about sexual assaults. Why would they not lie about, you know, graduation rates? I mean, there's a lot of things about education that are, that are uncomfortable for people to talk about. And I wonder about whether those truths will be acknowledged when, these, when the data is put out there. A lot of people who go to the best schools in the country are really smart and were given every benefit they could in life and therefore are probably going to be very successful and be able to get rid of a lot of their debt pretty quickly if they ever had debt. I mean, you just can't compare that situation to the kids who go to a university that is not as prestigious. I mean, it's just I think about all the different schools. I mean, I'm not going to name it, but I'm thinking of a school right now that I think of as only a school for kids who are lazy or not that smart in college. To me. <laughs> but not Lazy or <laughs> right not that smart, people. but have money. Right. I mean, you know, there are a bunch of schools like that. I'm not going to write it down because you'll say that I wrote it. I will not write it down. But, but, but in any case, my only point is there's such different circumstances. How do you compare a, a historically black college that is there for people who work really hard but maybe don't come from wealthy backgrounds and get there? And how do you compare that school, that graduation rate, that college debt to, say, the University of Pennsylvania? Well, Those are good questions. I do want to say, though, that the outcomes for students who go to less prestigious schools are also really good. And I think so. It's not just like, oh, you're better off if you go to college in the Ivy League. You're actually much better off income wise for your whole life if you go to a state school, too. I think. Honestly, this rating system should be designed in a way that it is mostly about showing who the bottom feeders are, in particularly the in particular the for profit schools, which are essentially taking in all this loan money and then turning around often programs that are deliberately recruiting people who aren't ready, who can't graduate, and leaving people with enormous debt and essentially just bilking the federal government out of a lot of money. This doesn't um, even get so into college I don't athletics, think pro- by the way. Right. I mean, just- well, I mean, yeah, that's another problem. I mean, the, one of the things that shocks me every time I go visit a campus, and I tend to visit campuses, I mean, I guess I'm visiting campuses of real decent universities, is how gold-plated they are, how beautiful they've yes, become, how another, excessive yeah. they've become. And here, you know, seeing the buildings, seeing the dormitories, and it's all 
sitting on it's all that is all built on a foundation of federally guaranteed student loans that ensure that universities have a steady regular supply of money to fund them and i find that odd and disturbing and and wish that we were addressing that i mean the university presidents really there there's this sense of entitlement that i sense in american higher education at the bureaucratic level not so much at the professor level i think it's actually harder to be a professor these days that's a little bit disturbing because it is all contingent on federally guaranteed loans. Right. There are two things that keep going up. College tuition, it's gone up 25 percent in the last 20 years or something, and the um, salaries of college presidents. And that sits on a foundation of these guaranteed student loans. The schools can raise the prices and get into arms races with each other over cafeterias and gyms and other amenities because everyone knows that even if students default, they don't really default. So then what do we do? Do we? I mean, that's why it seems to me the government, which holds the purse strings, should be do, providing the ratings because the only other option is to make the supply of money more limited, which that seems like it would hurt kids. One other thing that, that we haven't touched on, but that is in addition to Emily making the point about the kids who go to less prestigious schools but graduate and then it, and they end up you know having successful careers making money getting rid of their student loan debt and the fact that, that there isn't a lot of encouraging of, of kids to seek those schools is, you know, we, we hold certain universities out as like these are the prizes and everything else is ridiculous, society writ large. But then I think there's also the question of not everyone should go to college and we're sending kids to college who shouldn't go to college. They should be going and learning a trade. Uh, there are literally millions of jobs that would be available if those skilled workers were there, but the skilled workers aren't there. Uh, there has been some effort by the government to hook up um, local businesses with local community colleges and other colleges and have people learn these trades. But there's an argument to be made that like some admissions counselors in high schools should be saying, if you don't want to go to college, you don't have to go to college. Would you like to learn a trade? And, but we devalue that, again, as a society. And Yeah, we've gone very tunnel vision. And the Obama administration is, like, number one on this, right, that everyone is supposed to go to college. Everyone's supposed it's to go to college. one path. It's not right. true. It's like, every, it's like saying everybody should own a house. Why? Well, what was so shocking yeah. about that, that study that I think the New York Times wrote about, I can't remember who did the data, because there's been this backlash. There's this idea, oh, going to college doesn't, isn't worth it. And Pugh. it turns out, I guess Pew did the data. Pew did the data. Oh, I thought that she it, was making an editorial comment. Maybe she was. <laughs> P, then she would say P.U. The, the, uh, the finding was that, in fact, going to college and finishing and getting your degree is a hugely valuable. It's basically worth a half a million dollars to you or for the course of your life, even if you That's a David for, Otor study, if I recollect. Maybe that's the wrong author. Anyway. The uh, MIT economist. economist, yes. Okay. So it's after you discount, account for all the tuition and so forth and the time you're not working from 18 to 22, whatever it is. It's worth it if you get a degree. But what's really happened is not so much that you're, that college is in, of increasing value. It's that not college and not having a degree is of diminishing value. So it's not that college wages are going up. It's that wages for people who don't go to college are going down. And that's what's so disturbing and makes me wonder about your, your skilled apprenticeship theory there, Jake, is – is it actually true that there are jobs sitting there waiting for you if you've finished a trade school? It seems to me that what's what's happened is that we have we have lost the entire non-college educated sector of the economy. That that has become a everything has been pushed out there. It is true. I mean, I don't I actually don't have the, the papers in front of me, but I remember when I interviewed I interviewed Mike Rowe, who just joined the CNN family. He's the guy that used to have the show Dirty Jobs, and he's got you this guys whole call it the family. 
the, the CNN, CNN family. Yeah, With a capital is, F? Is it the mafia? Not, we, 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 is that like mafia or cult? Which terms. way? Uh, so he's a member of the CNN mishpacha. And, <laughs> and, uh, so, so, and he, uh, he has this thing. He testifies a lot about this before Congress, about the importance of these apprenticeship programs. And yes, I was looking at BLS statistics. There are thousands, if not millions of jobs for – the problem is not that the jobs aren't there. The problem is that the, the skilled workers are not there. And that's why the unemployment rate persists. One of the I mean, reasons. all of these things could be true at once, once, right, David? Because your declining wages for non-college graduates could reflect the fact that there's this mismatch Jake is identifying. And also, we should just point out that if you start going to college and you don't finish and you have the debt and not the degree, that is not a good position to be in. Right. That's, the, that's almost as bad as not going to college at all. Exactly. I, I sort of feel like one of the problems with this debate about college it's had is that it's basically had by – journalists, professors, people who have gone to elite colleges and have a sense about what the college experience is. And that limits it. The real college experience that most people have is college that's scrambled together around work, that's college at night, that's college that's not full time, and that we need more voices talking about what that experience is. Right. And more thinking about what the barriers are to finishing, especially if you're poor or black or Hispanic, because we know that that's a bigger problem for those groups. And um, I'm sure that some Slate podcast has talked about this already, but Paul Tuff just did a really interesting piece for The New York Times Magazine about the University of Texas's kind of really interesting effort to deliberately try to take those kids from the minute they come on campus and give them a sense of belonging and extra support in a way that makes them feel not like they're screwed and they need remedial help, but that they're special and leaders and important. And that seems to make a real difference how you frame it. I remember when I was a freshman at Dartmouth and there was a kid who was clearly from a challenged background. And I remember talking to him freshman year and and then he just vanished. He disappeared. And, and I remember thinking... I bet he had no support network, none. Oh my god! You know, that's so I was just, as you started. I was thinking about this girl in my freshman dorm, and I had exactly the same thought, and vanished. Yeah, I mean, it just, he was. Uh, I don't want to go into detail about him, but he was an African American kid. I think he was from the Philadelphia area, and I remember seeing him uh, at the gym, and I talked to him a little bit because we we're both from Philly, and then he, I just never saw him again. And and he was he was clearly an inner city kid, and I'm sure had been picked to go, and Dartmouth probably was patting itself on the back, and then, you know, you need to support once you get there. Yeah, good intentions aren't enough. All right, let's move on to our next topic. There is a remarkable new report out on blight in Detroit. It, f- it found that there's a lot of blight in Detroit. The city's population has, of course, dropped from 2 million to about 700,000 over the last 50 years. It's in bankruptcy. It cannot keep its streetlights on. It can barely pay its cops. It has some of the worst schools in the United States. And it is attempting to figure out how to save itself. And one way it's thinking about trying to save itself is by changing how its land and buildings work and how it's changing its built environment. So it, the survey found that if about 380,000 parcels of land in the city, approximately a third of them were empty, of the remainder of those that had buildings on it, about a third of those buildings were blighted, that were in a state of severe de- dilapidation, were abandoned, were burned down, were collapsed. In other words, if you kind of do some quick numbers on it, fully half of that city is gone and in some cases still there in the form of a shell building but or n- there nothing at all is there. The estimate is that it will cost slightly less than a billion dollars to clear out 
the blighted buildings and another billion or so to clear out the huge commercial structures, the big empty manufacturing plants that also dot and despoil the landscape in the city. So I just visited Detroit for the first time in my life. Have you guys been there? Yeah. Only the airport. Doesn't count. I've been to Flint. It's sad. It's, it's really crazy. It's sad. It is like I, I, I was struck. I, I was expecting, obviously, you read about the ruined porn and you read about how bad it is. But this sense, it is like no other environment I've ever seen. It's despair, right? You, you, walk, in, you, you walk down the street and you, or you drive around and it's just, it's, you just feel despair. Or you don't feel anything because there's nobody there. Right. Like empty where there should be people and, and weeds empty, where there like should be grass. Is it missing teeth empty, in which case it gets really hard? How do you shrink the footprint? Or is it like, oh, well, this, obviously this whole I, – I can't imagine that it's like this whole square mile is gone. Oh, it's like that. I, I mean, to really? me, the, the, the most striking area was this area uh, – I think it's called Indian Village. I could be – I may have misremembered. I think it's Indian Village. Beautiful mansions, beautiful, beautiful houses, probably – four blocks wide and 10 blocks deep, all beautiful houses. And then you go half a block off of it in any direction, completely blighted. It's this island of beauty and and occupation in a sea of dilapidation and uh, arson. And you feel like there's nothing to connect it to the rest of the world. Like how how can a city survive? How can this place survive if it doesn't have ligaments that join it to itself? It's amazing is that we, um, you know, we have a cabinet-level position called the Department of Housing and Urban Development. So somebody's job, and presumably thousands of, of federal employees, their job is to make sure that cities are okay. And yet we see cities die, and they don't die overnight. They die week by week, month by month, year by year. And the people in those cities are in a state of denial as, as citizens flee. Uh, mayors and city council members promise that things are going to change. And then we watch them die. Detroit is obviously a case study, but it's not alone. It's not the only city that this has happened to. It's just perhaps possibly the worst. Well, that's one one thing I wanted to get at was do you guys think – is Detroit anomalous? Is it aberrational? The level of destruction and chaos there is so much greater than any place I've ever seen. Or is it just a, a particularly bad example of something which plagues us in lots of places? I mean, I think there are a few other examples. Isn't Cleveland also plagued with some really high level of trouble? But to me, the other side of the story is that when I was growing up in the 80s in Philadelphia, it seemed like this was going to be true about Philadelphia. Certainly, we've had moments in New Haven, little I did not know but Emily sad New Haven. I mean, it felt like here. cities yeah, you guys generally. Want a you guys, do you guys need to talk Emily, to Emily, where did you go to high school? Germantown Friends. Have we talked about this? I went to Akiba. I don't know. Where did I went you go to, to high school? I went to Akiba. Oh, right. Yes. No, I feel like now I remember okay. that. And but can... I remember because this is exactly true. The feeling that Philadelphia was dying was very tangible in the 80s. The difference is we didn't have – I mean, first of all, Detroit had an entire industry kind of die and then come back to life, but, but the auto industry. But Ed Rendell was a remarkable mayor. And we, and we had two terms of, of a mayor who, who got Philadelphia back on its feet. Uh, and he did – in Philadelphia, what a lot of mayors were not able to do, which is negotiate tougher contracts with uh, with with unions. with unions and and attract business, and it's the reason he was ultimately elected governor of Pennsylvania. But but I mean, we had sometimes, and this is something I learned when writing my book about Afghanistan. Uh, so it's weird talking about Philadelphia in that in that way. But sometimes history really does does depend on on the right leader at the right time, whether you're in a valley in Afghanistan or the city of Philadelphia. I do. I'm, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. Not to say, I think there have been the story of this 
period in American life will be the story of cities and the revival of American cities. And it's Rendell is an example. Obviously, Giuliani and Bloomberg in New York are the Baltimore, uh, maybe <laughs> Rahm Emanuel in Chicago, perhaps will be such a person. But I actually think it has to, that you have to take into account physical geography, which is that what Philadelphia has, what New York City has, what Chicago has, what San Francisco has, what Seattle has, is a concentrated center. Mm-hmm. They have the center which which can serve as gravity for a region. Detroit does not have that. The thing that struck me about Detroit is that it's a gigantic city. It's much bigger than it needs to be given its population. Its its footprint is too huge. Its streets are too wide. There's too much space. It's too hard to get from one place to another and there are no good transportation networks. I mean, I guess there are car, you know, roads, but besides you can't there are no buses that are good. There's no trains. And but that's bad leadership. I mean, that's but well, that's but, what I'm but that was bit, but that was but bad it's a leadership. City built that was from bad a different era, a the era years of the ago. auto right. industry. But that's right. Emily has a good point. Like you don't, you can't expect uh, public transportation to thrive in a city that depends on on cars. But yes, I, I'm not saying bad leadership now. I mean, I'm, I'm not blaming it on Dave Bing, but I mean, bad leadership for for decades. People getting indicted in the mayor. Well, it was office. a model of what a city could be, and it's a model that we, if you look, you know, if you look south and west if you look at a phoenix it's how, if a phoenix went awry you could see phoenix completely collapsing because there isn't anything to hold that city together or a dallas in that in that way whereas whereas a city that is denser and has a kind of forced central geography that if you can get that center working that the rest of the city can thrive and and i don't think that can happen in detroit Well, that's a new-ish way of thinking about this because when you go back to the 80s, the fear about the urban cores were that they were poor and scary and there was a ton of crime and and nobody wanted to live there. Right, right. And it turned out to be – I mean it was kind of true. But what what people like Rendell and Giuliani did was say, okay – I mean the thing about Detroit, like there's graffiti. Mm-hmm. It's really weird to go a place where there's graffiti. Right. You don't what are ever you see graffiti. About? There's anymore. graffiti all over the place. Nah, not like in, in Detroit in Detroit there's this gigantic building which looms over the whole city. It's a very large building and on the top floor in letters probably forty feet high, it says zombie land. And that's what you look okay, at. That's not of, good. And you're like, Oh, <laughs> I don't really want to be here. It says zombie land on that building. I, think you saw, I don't there, think there is graffiti in the same way there there used to be. I've heard conservatives argue that Detroit is a perfect example of what happens when liberal politics are allowed to go unfettered. I, I'm no scholar of Detroit. I can't rebut that. But I do think that one-party rule in any city is dangerous. And oh, absolutely. I mean, when you look at the union contracts, when you look at the indictments, I think there is certainly that lesson in Detroit. And Philadelphia doesn't have to be. Emily will remember what? we had Republican mayors in Philadelphia. There were there were Frank Rizzo was the mayor when uh, Emily. Oh, and I you're were not going to try to resuscitate and rehabilitate. No, no, Frank I'm just saying. Rizzo, no, my my point is that there are competitive <laughs> elections in Philadelphia. There, well, honestly, barely. I mean, when you think about it, Frank Rizzo is, what, late 70s. So I don't know, think we've had a Republican mayor since then. And there usually is like a token Republican okay, or two in Giuliani, the city council. But Giuliani is a Bloomberg, Bloomberg started out Republican. I mean, it, it does. My only point is I think that I'm not arguing in favor of Republicans ruling cities, but I think competitive politics, uh, not just in the primaries, is healthy. And also a force that reigns in the unions. And I don't say that in an anti-union way. But if you live in a city where the unions essentially can get whatever contract deal they want, that can really bankrupt the city. I mean, I'm, I'm all for tough negotiations with city unions. But is that the problem? Is that really? I think people point at that as a problem in a, in a way that discounts the larger economic forces. I mean, Detroit lost 
its entire economic engine. And also it had these riots, which sent most of its white population fleeing, its white population and its big tax base fleeing. And it suddenly didn't have enough density to to make sense anymore. I mean, is that a union's problem? Is that a le- bad liberal government problem? I'm not sure. I agree with your premise, Jake, that the competitive elections is, are probably very healthy for places. But I'm not sure that that's, that's why a Detroit hollowed out. Well, I guess what you're asking is, like, if you were going to rank the factors, what would be first? And maybe the sort of misconstruction of Detroit over this vast number of square miles might be number one or maybe number two. And number one is the collapse of the auto industry and the economic base. What I find confusing about Detroit is that the suburbs around Detroit are in great shape, right? So it's not like there isn't economic health and wherewithal in that area. It's that the city itself is too big and sprawling and unwieldy and then corrupt and plagued by all the pension plans it agreed to and and has all these basic problems of flight and crime and disaster. So last question. Should it be a national project? to try to save Detroit? Should we in Washington, in New Haven, worry that Detroit is dying? Or is it basically just tragedy for people who live in Detroit, but it it doesn't implicate the rest of us and it's not something we should concern ourselves about? I think that uh, I'm I'm not supposed to take positions on policies just in in the course of my job, but I think that there is something to be said about how New Orleans managed the disaster of Katrina. And instead of trying to be exactly what they were before Katrina – They decided to try to manage what they were able to be and they have fewer residents and they have – but but they are – the city has bounced back to a large degree. I think setting expectations low, you know, Detroit may never again be a city of 1.8 million residents. I think the idea of tearing down buildings and trying to improve what they're doing uh, is healthy and and I don't know why it shouldn't be a, a federal priority. What do you think, Emily? I think that you have to be very cold-hearted and pragmatic about cities and the way in which they try to revive. And what happened in New Orleans, some of it was really painful and wrenching and whole neighborhoods were abandoned and there were people who felt incredibly dispossessed. And I – my heart goes out to them and I also think it can be completely necessary and that we – there isn't some – romantic idea in the sky that a city has to look the way it used to look or that it owes to its residents a continuing shape of their neighborhoods. That sometimes you just have to reconstitute the whole thing. And then the tricky part is to actually do it right, because what we know about urban renewal over the years is that we often completely screw it up and make things worse instead of better. All right, let's hear from our second sponsor. The podcast is brought to you this week by the University of California. By awarding more than $1 billion in financial aid annually, the University of California makes a world-class education affordable to California's best and brightest, creating opportunity through knowledge. That's the power of public. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. And now for today's breakthrough. The next frontier of medicine isn't in the depths of an Amazon jungle or in an air-conditioned lab. It's in the rich and mysterious bacterial swamp of your gut. That's your gut, Jake Tapper. Mine? Yeah. Long viewed as an enemy within, the bacteria in the body have been subjected to a century-long war in which antibiotics have been the medical weapon of choice. But today, the scientific consensus about our body's relationship with the trillions of microbes that call it home, trillions of potential viewers and listeners, (laughs) collectively known as the microbiome, is changing dramatically. From potentially shaping our personalities to fighting obesity, the bacteria in our bellies play a much stronger role in our overall health than we once thought. To read the story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. So let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are pondering the fate of Detroit 
or thinking about whether you can afford to send your child to college, Emily Bazelon, what will you be chattering about? I am super excited about Taylor Townsend and how she is right now ripping through the um, her bracket at the French Open. She's the young American tennis star. She's 18. She's number one in the world, which is like a miracle for an American woman. But what do you she's mean she's number big. one in the world? No, uh, for 18-year-olds. Oh, okay. For, ki- for girls. For juniors. Okay. <laughs> that kind of number one. Coming. But she is a physically large person, and so I think it was last year Patrick McEnroe, despicably as the president of the USTA, refused to pay for her to go um, to the U.S. Open, which otherwise she would have been entitled to. And it was simply about the fact that he just decided that she didn't look the part, essentially. I mean, it really seemed to boil down to that. He made some mumbling about her long-term health. But what I think is so great about her is that she's an incredibly powerful player, and also she moves around the court. I was watching some highlights this morning, and she gets to the ball. And it doesn't seem to me that there's any evidence that someone with her physique is going to be less healthy later in life. She's not obese. She does not look like she doesn't belong on a tennis court. So I hope she helps us broaden our images of what women can look like and be really successful athletes. And I hope she continues to kick butt in this tournament. I mean, that's, isn't that sort of true of Serena Williams? Serena Williams is no, you know, Different long-limbed body. Russian. I mean, she just looks like nobody else on earth. That's Serena Williams. Yeah, but Serena Williams looks like an She's Amazon. all muscles, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Taylor Townsend looks more like Lindsay Davenport used to look. But but I think a little bigger than that, maybe. She's just, like, not what you're... She's not a live, slim tennis star. But you know what? There are a lot of women who play tennis successfully who are a little heavy and good for them. See, I don't even see body types or shapes so i don't i mean people i just look at souls uh-huh. so when that how's her soul so when Emma, bullshit her soul is a great tennis player um so i don't know why what emily's talking about uh jake do you have a cocktail chatter for us i, I was thinking about um this cocktail chatter idea and i think so much of of what people talk about these days is because we're in this golden age of television and a crappy age of movies People talk about their favorite shows all the time. I have so many shows on Sunday night that I can't watch them all. I actually have to space them out over the course of the week because there's Mad Men and Game of Thrones and Veep. Silicon Valley is very funny. Uh, The Good Wife is is an excellent show. Oh, my God. Listen to you. I know. How do you have time for all those different shows? You're, like, beating us at the TV game. I I spread them out over the week. But there's one show that I discovered because one of the the members of my crew asked me if I'd seen it because I was expressing – I'm a big fan of the actor uh, Idris Elba. And I was saying that I thought he should be the next James Bond. This is something, an argument right. I get into a lot of people. Right, but. yes. So Isn't I don't want to hear the next James Bond? No, no. no they, oh. they, he, he hasn't. But I will say this. If you haven't seen the TV show he did for BBC, that you can now get on Netflix on BBC America, which is called Luther. If you haven't seen it, it's only four episodes long and seasons in Britain are like five shows. So it's not, it's not a huge commitment like, uh, like catching up in four seasons of a uh, with four a, seasons a, a long or four bed. episodes long? It, they're like – there, there have been four seasons. Four seasons. Each the first season was okay. like eight episodes okay. and from then on I went on. Anyway, my only point is this is really good television and if you're a television connoisseur as I am, then then you should check it out. That's awesome. Goes on the list with Borgen, which was what Jake Weisberg recommended the last time he was on the Gap Fest, right? But I think Luther is actually available on like Borgen. Like, yeah, the problem with Borgen happened? is this it's really like hard to find. This is like my summer TV list. When my kids go to camp, I'm grateful for the recommendations. It's um, very dark, Emily, so you'll love it. Oh, I'm all about very yeah, dark, I know. sadly. So my chatter is I, I just want to praise in the highest possible way this new novel, The Bees, by Laleen Paul. Laleen Paul? I'm not sure how to pronounce your name, Laleen. You, you read it. You don't pronounce it. I'm just going to 
that was me reading her name. So <laughs> it was reviewed uh, lavishly and, and praisefully in the New York Times this weekend. I went out and bought it and read it in, in about six minutes. It's the story of a bee, Flora 717, and her hive and her life in her hive. There are no humans. It's all an imagined bee experience, and it conjures up what this what one could imagine that bees would be like if they could speak and if they had as much human consciousness as we do, which when she drops you into that world, you think there's no way it'll work. There's no way. It is so good. The way scent plays a role, the way vibration plays the role, the kind of relationship with the flowers, the sense of being part of a collective, the need to self set to sacrifice yourself for the whole and yet maintain an individual identity. This bee, this bee is like a, she's an Ayn Rand hero with wings. It's, one of the best books I've ever read. It's like it, it, as a conjuring of a different kind of world. It is incredible. So read the bees. Can I ask you two questions? Could yes. you read it out loud with your kids? Is it that kind of book or no? Could you read it out loud with your kids? It's pretty sophisticated. I mean, is it like the watership down of the insect world? I hope not. That's terrifying, that book. Is it the what? It's a li- <laughs> Good, I, I found All those it, dead bunnies? It's, it's a little bit like – it's a little book. bit uh, – I think it's a little bit deeper and more sophisticated. It's it's a pretty sophisticated book. So it's not the B movie. It's not. Uh, okay. It's not B movie, but right. it has. It's like B movie, but with philosophy thrown in. Right. What's your second question? Uh, whether it was Watership Down. Oh, you answered it. The, I will tell you that tons of bees die in the making of it. If they ever do the movie, they're going to have to kill bees off just by the by the thousands. No bees were killed in the. Many or, or, or many, so many bees. Right. Were Millions killed. of bees were harmed and killed in the making of this film. So today we say goodbye to our intern, Rebecca Cohen, who's going off to a better place. That is San Francisco, where she's going to work for Mother Jones. Rebecca has been a stalwart and creative intern. Rebecca Cohen wrote all those GabFest summaries for our show page, which is GabFestAtSlate.com. And all those links to what we talked about today, Rebecca Cohen put them in. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Rebecca Cohen writes those tweets. When you write to our email address, gabfestislate.com, Rebecca Cohen is the first person who reads that email and probably is the person who responds to it. Our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest, is her queendom. Rebecca Cohen is constantly updating and posting there. You can subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store. You search for Slate Political Gabfest and leave a comment and rating. Write a comment about Rebecca Cohen. Mike Volo produces the show, and he basks in the reflected glory of Rebecca Cohen. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts and will soon take all his orders from Rebecca Cohen. Max Tanney is our new intern and is hoping to become a Rebecca Cohen. But for now, there's only one Rebecca Cohen. For Emily Bazelon and our guest, Jake Tapper, who show the lead you should be watching at 4 o'clock today or tomorrow or the next day. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. 
my colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.